It's now time for the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP and the ESPN-UP app. Hi, everybody. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad that you're with us. Tuesday afternoon, work week, flying right by. Hope it's been a great day for you. It has been for me. Plenty of headlines making news in the sports world today and yesterday. Right around the time we were signing off yesterday's show, it was announced that Amari Cooper had been traded to the Dallas Cowboys for a first-round draft pick. One of the most lopsided trades in recent NFL history. Who won that trade? We dissect that. LeBron's 0-3 start in Los Angeles. How the fans may be reacting to it. And who should be more worried? The Eagles or the Jaguars? Fun fact, they play each other Sunday at Wembley Stadium in London. We have all that coming up on a packed sports pen today. But first, a message from the MHSAA on the week that the football postseason begins. Vikings making history, trickery and communication, and football week in Michigan. It's all next on This Week in High School Sports, powered by Michigan Student Aid, Michigan's go-to resource for student financial aid. Hi again, everyone. I'm John Johnson, and welcome to This Week in High School Sports. It's been a historic season for the football team at Jackson High School. Here's Greg O'Connor from MHSAA Network affiliate WKHM in Jackson. Long a high school football afterthought, the Jackson High Vikings of head coach Scott Farley capped a dream season Friday night with a huge win at Lake Fenton 36-14 without star running back Xire Edwards, who was injured. Micah Kretzinger scored five touchdowns, helped the Vikings to their first unbeaten regular season ever, dating back to 1894. Their first league title of any kind since 1942, winning the Southeastern Conference White Division. Jackson head coach Scott Farley. Well, the kids, the kids, if they didn't know what they pulled off, their parents and the community have let them know what they've accomplished. Um, it's been a really cool thing to see how uh, so many people uh, in person and on social media and all those kinds of things have been really supportive. And so uh, from that perspective, it's been awesome. And as a coach, it's gratifying to accomplish that sort of thing over the court. You know, we've been here six years now and, and to, to kind of slowly build to that point and, you know, to, to feel like you're you're making good progress. Our JV team was 8-1. and one. You know, we feel like we're this isn't going to be a one-hit wonder. Jackson will host the Okemos Chieftains Friday night in the opening round of the playoffs. For this week in high school sports, I'm Greg O'Connor. Thanks, Greg. Our MHSAA.TV game balls this week go out to the boys and girls cross-country teams at Sault Ste. Marie, which swept the UP Division I titles last Saturday at Munising. And Annika Dye of Northville, who won her third straight individual title in leading the Mustangs to the Lower Peninsula Division I girls golf crown last weekend. You can read all about last weekend's finals in cross-country golf and tennis on the second half page of the MHSAA website. Back with more in a moment, you're listening to This Week in High School Sports. Do you need money for college? Michigan Student Aid is Michigan's go-to resource for student financial aid. They administer scholarships, grants, college savings programs, and other resources that help make college accessible, affordable, and achievable for you. See how they can help you today by visiting michigan.gov slash mystudentaid and connect with Michigan Student Aid on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram.
Our weekly Be the Referee feature takes a look at the fine art of officiating with Sam Davis. One of the long-term strategies in the game of football is deception. It has a lot of other names and most often goes these days by the name of trickery. Catching an opponent off guard can break a game wide open, but catching the officiating crew off guard is something you don't want to have happen or else your big play may be blown dead inadvertently. That's why during the pregame meeting the officiating crew has with each head coach, one of the questions that will be asked is, Coach, do you have any trick plays that we should be watching for? And coaches, who are usually tight-lipped about a lot of their strategies, will be very open and describe in detail anything fancy that's in the playbook for that game. This type of communication gets coaches and officials on the same page and ensures that when trickery comes visiting, only the opponents are surprised. Thanks, Sam. You can be a referee. Go online now to MHSAA.com to register. The MHSAA football playoffs are an integral part of the Football Week in Michigan program conducted by Fox Sports Detroit. And Football Week is much more than a buffet of games Thanksgiving week. The Fox coverage begins this week in Kent City, up in Apple Country, north of Grand Rapids, where the local nature of high school sports in a small town will be captured with two days of activities, culminating Friday at 7 p.m., with Kent City hosting Saugatuck in a Division 7 playoff game that you can watch live on Fox Sports Detroit+. Plus. Throughout the football playoffs, Fox will cover three games each week on the Prep Zone on the Fox Sports Detroit website. At Thanksgiving week, show replays of the eight-player football finals on Tuesday and provide live coverage of the 11-player finals that Friday and Saturday from Ford Field on Fox Sports Detroit+. Plus. So enjoy the playoffs, everyone, and catch some great games on cable and online on Fox Sports Detroit. You've been listening to This Week in High School Sports, powered by Michigan Student Aid, a production of the MHSEA Network. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I'm John Johnson. We'll see you next time. High school playoffs get started in the great state of Michigan this weekend. Don't forget, we'll have Westwood Patriot football visiting Calumet on Friday night. That is a 6.30 pregame, 7 o'clock kickoff on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Looking back at the NFL yesterday, right around the time we were signing off our show, we had a blockbuster NFL trade and was one of the most lopsided trades in recent memory. The Oakland Raiders sent wide receiver Amari Cooper to the Dallas Cowboys for a first-round draft pick. There was a clear winner in that trade deal, and it was not Jerry Jones and the Dallas Cowboys. The Oakland Raiders got an absolute steal with the trade yesterday. That's not even fair. Not even fair what happened yesterday. Let's look at it this way. Is there anybody who thinks that Amari Cooper is worth a first-round draft pick to any team? Is Amari Cooper worth a first-round draft pick? From what we've seen this season, Amari Cooper is not consistent enough to be an elite NFL receiver. Cooper's been all over the map. He has two games where he's gone over 100 yards receiving, but he has had four games where he's been held below 45 yards. He has been way too inconsistent. Yes, he has the potential to be elite. A former first-round draft pick himself coming out of Alabama. But what makes him worth a first-round draft pick is the asking price. That he's going to have one good game for every three and be held below 45 yards in the other two? I mean, a second-rounder is pushing it for a guy with those numbers. What was Dallas doing? What are they trying to accomplish with this trade? Let's look at it from Dallas' perspective. They need weapons around Dak Prescott. No doubt about it. Absolutely none. 
Cole Beasley was the wide receiver one before the Cooper trade yesterday. That certainly is not a recipe for success, so I get you want to go out and get a playmaker. Dallas's problems go well beyond who Dak Prescott is throwing the ball to. And this all dates back to 2016, Dak's rookie year, when he filled in for Tony Romo after Romo went down hurt and never got his job back. He got Wally pipped. Dak let him do a 13-3 season. They made the postseason, end up losing to the Packers on a heartbreaking last-second field goal. That was maybe the worst thing that could happen for Dak Prescott. Look at the Dallas Cowboy offensive line back in 2016. That line gave him all day. That was maybe the best Dallas Cowboy offensive line that they have ever put out. And it made people think that Dak Prescott was an elite NFL quarterback. It made Dak believe that. Fast forward two years. They enter the preseason with four of those same starting five on the offensive line. But now they're a shell of what they used to be. Travis Frederick, all-pro center, out with Guillaume Barre. Certainly his worries go well beyond football, but Joe Looney, from a football perspective, is just flat out not Travis Frederick. Tyron Smith, at one point people were thinking he might be the best left tackle in the NFL. Now all you got to do is put on a speed rush. How about the left guard, Connor Williams? Crucial penalty on Sunday, absolutely crucial. Wiped away a first down. Collins on the right side of the line. He does okay, but he's not consistent. The only true set piece that they have there is Zach Martin. Zach Martin at right guard. He played left tackle as a senior at Notre Dame in college. They moved him to right guard, and he's doing well at it. But he's the only mainstay for that Dallas offensive line. It is just a shell of what it was back in 2016. They made Dak look so much better than he actually is back in 2016. Dak Prescott is still young, still developing. There's still a ceiling that he has yet to reach. But he holds on to the football way too long. And he doesn't have the offensive line that he did two years ago that made him look so good. Back in 2016, he had all day to throw. All the protection you could ever want as a quarterback. Didn't matter who he was throwing to. You knew that at some point, somebody was going to get open because Dak had all day to throw. He doesn't anymore. In case you're still skeptical about how long Dak holds on to the football, let me throw some numbers at you. Dak holds on to the football from the time he gets the snap to the time he gets rid of it for just over three seconds. Three and a fraction. Now that may not seem like a lot, but in the NFL where you're being bull rushed by these massive 250-pound men, three seconds is an eternity to hold on to the football. That's how long Dak needs to make the progressions happen. The only two quarterbacks who hold on to the ball longer on average from snap to the time they release it, Josh Allen and Deshaun Watson. And let's take a look at where those teams rank in terms of sacks allowed. All three of them in the top ten. Dallas offensive line has allowed the ninth most sacks in the NFL this season. Mentioned Josh Allen, Deshaun Watson, the only quarterbacks that hold on to the ball longer than Dak. Their lines aren't much better. Houston's fourth on that list. Buffalo leads the NFL in sacks allowed this season. So you have three quarterbacks that hang on to the football longer than anybody else in the NFL. And all three of their offensive lines 
rank in the bottom third of sacks allowed this season. You do not need to be a football fan to know that is a recipe for disaster. Dak needs time. Like any quarterback, he needs time, but Dak needs it more than most. You look at his numbers, he's holding on to the football too long. It doesn't matter who he's throwing to. Amari Cooper's a great wideout. Okay, I still don't think he's worth a first-round draft pick, maybe not a second. But he's going to be the top wideout in Dallas. He's going to end up being Dak's favorite target. But it's not going to matter if Dak doesn't have time to throw the football. Dallas should have held on to that first-round draft pick and used it to revamp the offensive line. Travis Frederick, Guillaume is a terrible thing. Terrible thing. It's affected my family. And the reality of it is, Travis Frederick is not coming back to football anytime soon. The offensive line needs a serious upgrade. Dallas has shown that they can win with an average quarterback. They can go 3-13 and if they stack the offensive line. They did it in 2016 with this same quarterback. Why have they gone away from it? That has been the recipe for success. They've already achieved it with this same general manager, this same owner, this same coaching staff. And they've gone away from it for whatever reason. Now people say, why not just get a new quarterback? Because you can win with Dak. He doesn't need to be an elite NFL quarterback to show that he can bring his team to the postseason. But you stack the line in front of him, you can make anybody look good back there. So as long as the offensive line's in the current shape that it is, doesn't matter if he has Amari Cooper to throw to, if he has Adam Thielen, if he has a second coming of Randy Moss. Doesn't matter. Dak Prescott's still holding on to the football too long, and he's still going to be on the ground way too much. But regardless of what I think, the trade is done. It's over with. It's happened. Amari Cooper is going to dress in a cowboy uniform this Sunday. So where does Dallas go from here? What do they expect out of this trade? That's what I don't get. Do they think that this is going to make them serious contenders, that adding one piece is going to turn their season around? I get the division is awful. The division's wide open. Dallas is 3-4 and four to start this season. That means they need to play over 500. They need to go at least 5-4 and four just to finish 500. They need to go 5-4 and four with Amari Cooper just to be 8-8. Eight and eight. And that still might not be enough to win the division. Because Washington's leading it right now. And Philadelphia, you get the feeling they can come alive at any time. Giants are dead in the water. They're a non-factor right now. So what's Dallas looking at, best case scenario? Can they win the division at 8-8? Eight and eight? It's not likely. I don't care how bad the division is. It's hard to win any division when you're 8-8. Eight and eight. So what's Dallas hoping out of this? Do they think they can win six of their last nine and go 9-7? and seven? Maybe push themselves off the bubble? Give themselves a better chance of winning the division? Do they really think Amari Cooper, one man alone, can deliver six wins in their final nine games? Let's say the stars align. They go 8-8, eight 9-7. and, eight, nine and seven. They win five or six of their last nine. They get a little help and somehow win the NFC East. It's the worst division in football. So what, what does that mean? What kind of accomplishment is that? They get into the postseason at 8-8 eight and eight or 9-7. and seven. They get bounced in the wildcard round. Is that worth a first-round draft pick? The whole basis of this was the division is wide open. Now we have a playmaker. Do you really think that Amari Cooper 
can give your team an extra two or three wins here in the final nine games. Dallas is on pace to do what? Win three of their final nine? Do they really think Amari Cooper can give them at least two extra wins on top of the three that they'd probably get without him? Do they really think he's that valuable? And even if the stars align and they make the postseason, then what? Are they going to feel good about a pseudo postseason appearance? One they never would have earned in any other division in the NFL this season? Now, I get the division's wide open this year, but what about next season? I mean, to have a realistic shot at the playoffs, you've got to go 5-4, and four, probably 6-3 and three over your final nine games. Next season, who knows what the division's going to look like? A lot can change in a year. It may not be as wide open or as bad as it is this season. Dallas gave up a first-round pick for a second-tier wide receiver to try and save what's probably a lost season. Dallas is not going to become a contender just by adding Amari Cooper. I'm not even sure that they got better because, again, Dak doesn't have time to find his playmakers. Amari Cooper brings nothing to the table that a talented corner can't take away. Can he get open in the three seconds it takes Dak to release the football? Dak had all day to throw in 2016. He could let average wide receivers run their routes all day and eventually someone would get open because he had time to throw the football. He doesn't anymore. Taking all of that into consideration, how is Amari Cooper going to make Dallas better? He might make the roster more talented, but being better is putting that talent to use. And they're not going to be significantly better on the field. So Dallas wants to win in the short term. They believe that they can go 5-4, and 6-3 and three over the final nine games, and they can win the NFC East. That's their goal for this. What if they don't? What if they don't win in the short term? What if they go 7-9 and nine, or they go 8-8 eight and eight and they don't win the division, they miss the playoffs? Then what? You invest in the short term. You gave up a first-round draft pick to go 500 or below and miss the playoffs. What was Dallas thinking in this trade? Let's look at it from Oakland's perspective. John Gruden is gutting the Raiders, but he's not doing it just to gut the Raiders. I like John Gruden. I would let him coach my team 10 out of 10 times. There is a method to the madness. Trading Khalil Mack, that was huge. Very unpopular with Raider fans. Amari Cooper, similar situation. Derek Carr may be the next to go. Marshawn Lynch is out until at least Christmas with injury. John Gruden has a method to the madness. He knows he has 10 years and he is taking advantage of it. They signed him to a 10-year deal over there. He's taking full advantage of this. He never would have done it on a two, three-year contract. John Gruden wants the guys that work best with his system. He wants his team. And guess what? He has five first-round draft picks coming up in the next two seasons. Now, people will make the case that Oakland has had 13 first-round draft picks since 2004. Of those 13 first-round picks, only two of them have been all-pro. Khalil Mack and Amari Cooper, neither of which are still with the team as of yesterday. Well, guess what? That's why John Gruden was brought in. He was brought in to change that culture. That's exactly why he's here. And I believe that's what he's doing. The Raiders are primed to peak by the time they move to Las Vegas. Everybody will be laughing and criticizing John Gruden and the Raiders until draft day.
John Gruden is a football genius, and he pulled a rabbit out of his hat with this trade. His biggest challenge is going to be keeping the locker room stable for the remainder of this season, because it's going to be a tough one. This is going to be a bad season, and Gruden knew that the entire time. This has been his plan all along. He's gutting the Raiders. He's building a team that he believes can win a championship in his system. It's going to be a tough year in the locker room already starting to be tumultuous. Gruden's got to manage that. That will be his biggest challenge. But he's doing everything right from a head coach standpoint as far as building the team that he can win with. We've got more coming up in the sports pen after this. Charlie Bramer will be my guest. We'll talk World Series, the Lakers 0-3 start to the LeBron era, and who should be more worried, the Eagles or the Jaguars? You're listening to the Sports Pen on ESPN UP and the ESPN UP app. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN UP and on the ESPN UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN UP, the ESPN UP app. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad that you're with us. Don't forget, Pigskin Payday's back. Pick the winner of each week's game to win. Play all season long for the $100,000 grand prize only at Ojibwe Casino in Barriga and Marquette. Once again, I'm Tanner Hoops. Charlie Bramer will be on with us later in the show. Let's dive a little deeper into the NFL. Last night, Week 7 concluded with a 23-20 victory for the Atlanta Falcons over the Giants on Monday Night Football. Atlanta picks up their third win. They're right back in the thick of things in a tight NFC South. The Giants, meanwhile, dead in the water at 1-6. Giants' two-minute offense looked pretty good. They are able to score two touchdowns in the last four minutes. Too little too late. You look at the Giants and you wonder what needs to change for them. They're in the same trap as the Cowboys just fell into yesterday. Their offensive line is terrible, and they're not doing anything to fix it. They've had opportunities to do so. What did the Giants think was going to be different from last season? You think bringing in Nate Solder, paying him a bunch of money is going is to make the difference? He's looked terrible for the amount that they're paying him. Nate Solder has to be better, and you know he's capable of that. Part of some really good Patriot teams. There's no reason he needs to be beat on the left side every other play. Bringing in Will Hernandez. Great pickup, but he's young. You can't expect him to pick up the load and be a superstar right out of the gate. Or can you? Because others are doing it. Zach Martin did it, mentioned him before the break. You've got guys around the league, superstar linemen, that are doing it right out of the gate. Giants missed on Eric Flowers two years ago. He's already off the team. The 49ers go out and get Mike McGlinchey. The Giants decide to get Nate Solder and then draft Will Hernandez. The starting center this season was a firefighter a month ago. Wasn't even in the National Football League. And the Giants still want somebody else to blame. And the blame falls on Eli Manning. Because he's the quarterback. Because he's won two Super Bowls. They want more out of him. Here's the thing. A Giants fan sent me a message on Snapchat last night saying, you should go on your show tomorrow and talk about how the Giants need to bench Eli and possibly fire Pat Shermer. I'm like, I'm not going to do either of those things because I don't believe either of those will fix the Giants. Has Eli been perfect this season? Absolutely not. And is he over the hill? Yes, he is. He's 37 years old, and his best days of football are behind him. He's on his last legs. But can he still be a valuable member of this team and contribute in a positive way to the Giants' success? Heck yes, he can. 
but he's not going to do it. Nobody's going to do it with the offensive line the Giants are putting out in front of him. Eli is taking way too much blame that he doesn't deserve. He has not been perfect, and I'm not going to defend him and say he has been, but he doesn't deserve the pressure that he's getting. I know you're going to get that in a big market in New York when you brought home two Super Bowls, but Eli Manning is not the end-all, be-all for the Giants' struggles. It doesn't matter what weapons he has downfield. He doesn't have time to throw the football. It's the same problem the Cowboys are going to realize with Amari Cooper when he tries to get his first pass from Dak Prescott. Doesn't matter what kind of playmakers you have downfield. Doesn't matter if you're throwing to Cole Beasley, Amari Cooper, Odell Beckham Jr., Sterling Shepard. Doesn't care if you're throwing to me or Tom Mogish right across the hall. It doesn't matter if you don't have time and nobody's going to block for you. That's the problem with the Giants right now. Pat Shermer, where do you get off saying that he is the problem? Last night's two-point conversion play call, that was awful. That was just awful. But is Pat Shermer still one of the best offensive minds in football? Absolutely. And the Giants are blessed to have him as a head coach. And you've got headstrong players right now that aren't allowing themselves to buy into his system. Pat Shermer, I would love to see what he could do with this Giants team. He's got so many weapons there, but we're not going to get to see how good of a coach he can beat with them because he doesn't have a line that's going to give Eli time, and he doesn't have players who want to listen right now. He doesn't have any locker room credibility. If you want to fire him for anything, it's not going to be because of that. Granted, the two-point call last night was awful. There was no reason for it, but every coach has had a call like that, even Belichick. People wonder why Eli's not making the passes like he used to. Some attribute it to age. He's not able to throw the football because he's too busy watching the pass rush. He's getting bull rushed by a combined 1,200 pounds of human muscle. He's getting bull rushed every single time and eaten turf. He barely has time to throw the football, and it forces him for the times that he is able to get it off and has a receiver open, forces him to be perfect every single time. You're not going to find a quarterback who can do that. I still believe in Eli Manning. I still think he has a lot to offer, but I don't think we're ever going to see it again because he is not going to be in the league long enough for the Giants to rebuild the offensive line. And I think it's sad. He's had such a great career. Two-time Super Bowl champ, two-time Super Bowl MVP. And he's going to go out with a fan base that's turning against him and with a locker room that's turning against him. It's really unfortunate for a future Hall of Famer. Eli is far from perfect, but you stick any quarterback behind that offensive line and he is going to struggle. Doesn't matter if he's 37 or if he's 22 right out of college, first overall draft pick. He is going to struggle. Doesn't matter if the Giants would have got a different quarterback this year. He would have struggled. Benching Eli will not be a solution to the problem. I think Eli's days are numbered in New York. I don't think he's going to leave, but I think he is on the verge of retirement. He's going to be forced into it after this season. And the Giants are going to look to the future, but they're going to waste it on trying to get a quarterback when they have one that can win for him right now. It's not going to matter who's under center as long as the offensive line stays the way it is. One Eli, whose days have already come to an end in New York, that is Eli Apple, traded earlier this afternoon, the corner out of Ohio. Here's the thing, 
He's got everything you would want, a good defensive back. And for whatever reason, the Giants have not been able to get the most out of him. He's struggled since he's come to New York. He's brought a few off-the-field antics that have been a problem. So is Odell Beckham. Eli Apple just can't seem to play his best football in a Giants uniform. He can't live up to the potential that they saw out of Ohio State. End up trading him to the Saints for two draft picks, a fourth rounder and a seventh rounder. Pretty poor return on investment for a guy they were so high on and drafted so highly. He got exposed last night in the Atlanta game. Janoris Jenkins as well. What happened to that guy? Was playing some of his best football two years ago. He was an all-pro. Now he looks like he can't cover anything. Can't cover anybody. And I get Atlanta has a talented group of wideouts. But Jack Rabbit, come on, man. You've got the speed. It's the attitude. The attitude in that Giants locker room right now is not good. They don't have guys who are there to win. They have guys who are angry and don't expect to win. Speaking of Atlanta wideouts, Julio Jones. What does he have to do to get a touchdown? 812 yards this year. Seven games into the season, no touchdowns. That is the most yards without a touchdown through the first seven games in any player's history. Julio is only 152 yards away from setting a new NFL record for yards without a touchdown. Again, he's going to put on the straight face with the media, and he's not going to make it seem like he cares. He doesn't. To him, it's about winning. But you got to think it's in the back of his mind somewhere. What's he got to do to be able to show off in the end zone, do his touchdown dance everyone loves to do? Linval Joseph has a touchdown before Julio Jones does this season. And Julio's still top five in NFL receiving yards this year. You feel for the guy. Will he break that record? Get to 964? Or will he finally get a touchdown beforehand? Well, taking a look back on week seven in the NFL, I give my Iron Man of the Week award to Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson and the Texans were playing in Jacksonville this weekend. Watson has a bruised lung, wasn't able to go in the airplane to fly from Houston to Jacksonville because they were worried about the air pressure, how it would affect his lung. So they put him on a bus, goes 12 hours on a bus from Houston to Jacksonville, and quarterbacks the Houston Texans to a victory. That's tough. He's not able to get on a plane, but he is able to go on an NFL field and compete against some of the best athletes in the world. That's toughness. Much respect to Deshaun Watson for that. Meanwhile, you've got guys like Le'Veon Bell waiting until he gets a bigger contract. And again, I know why Le'Veon's doing it. I'm not taking a dig at Le'Veon. I'm just saying, that's pretty impressive. When you look at a guy like Deshaun Watson, what he's doing, that's toughness. Coming up, we'll preview the World Series. We'll talk a little NBA. How worried should the Lakers be after their 0-3 start to the season? And touch on the NFL. Who should be more worried, Jacksonville or Philadelphia? Charlie Bramer joins me in studio after this on ESPN-UP and the ESPN-UP app. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. 
Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops joined by Charlie Bramer. Second time working together, but he's no stranger to the Sports Pen. Charlie, as always, thanks so much for being here. I'm glad to be here again. And, of course, I have a message for the people. The Pigskin Payday is back at Ajibo Casinos. Predict the winners of each week's game. Play all season long for your chance at the $100,000 grand prize only at Ajibo Casinos, Berga, and Marquette. All right, so we've got... Well, we've covered a lot already with NFL. Let's let's finish off NFL quickly. Who should be more worried right now, Philadelphia or Jacksonville? Both of them final four teams last year. One of them won it all. They're going to face off in London this weekend. I'm not sure that's the impression we want to make for them over there is the way those two teams are playing right now. Who should be more worried? Well, you got to say Jacksonville, right? Mm-hmm. Because the Eagles have been there, done that. Mm-hmm. So, and And these people... You know, Doug Peterson is saying the pressure's off of him. And and people are already jumping all over Doug Peterson. Oh, he's wrong. The guy obviously knows what he's doing. Don't – where's this earned respect? Like, it just disappears. Mm-hmm. Didn't this guy earn some respect? Mm-hmm. And um, I kind of got to get on you a little, Tanner, because yesterday, man, you were stabbing me right in the – oh, man, just daggered me when you were talking about Mike McCarthy. Mm-hmm. Man, all the guy does is win. And and there's a few coaches in the NFL, Mike McCarthy. For some reason, I feel like Sean Payton really gets a pass. Mm-hmm. He's obviously, him and Mike McCarthy are kind of one and the same. Mm. Um, obviously, you can say, you know, Sean Payton kind of has better offenses or they kind of have different specialties in the way, differences in the way they run their teams. But if you look at them record-wise, well, McCarthy's got them beat pretty good. But... Um, and, and it's like Doug Peterson, you know, he wins the Super Bowl, greatest coach. Oh, he's such an up-and-coming great coach. Six, seven weeks into this season, where's his respect gone? And um, it's almost kind of the same thing with Jacksonville, you know. Last year they were a really good team. The NFL flips so quickly now. What causes that? What do you think causes these people to just flip on these teams so quickly? Teams want to be good right away. Well, fans want the team to be good right away. They don't understand it's a process. There's no patient fan base. There's no true patient fan base outside of maybe the 76ers. Those guys learned patience with the whole trust the process thing that was going on over the last few years. I will give you credit, though. Mike McCarthy needs some people in his corner. You're a diehard Packers guy. You've got the skull cap on right now. But I'm not sure I agree with you as far as putting him on the same level as Sean Payton, but I give you credit for going out on that stance. And I wish the best for Mike McCarthy, nothing against him or anything. I just don't always feel like he's getting the most out of Aaron Rodgers or the team he's having. That, obviously, you can, you know, with a guy like Aaron Rodgers, I mean, there's always more to get out of that tank. But there's only one coach in the NFL that has won more since Mike McCarthy's been the coach of the Packers. I think we all know who that Mm -hmm. is. And, and I mean, there, I, I have this, it, not really an argument, but this discussion with a lot of people, pack, especially it seems Packers fans, which I would think Packers fans would all love Mike McCarthy, but it's starting to, I'm starting to understand why, why they don't. But at the same time, who else are you going to have? Who are you going to bring in? There's, I'm not good at math, but what, 32 teams, only mm-hmm. one coach has won more. What are the odds you're going to bring in this other guy that's going to just all of a sudden catapult this team? Man, I just, 
I'm just one of these guys. When a guy's a winner, man, he's earned that respect, and it, it's got to stick for a while to me. And Doug Peterson, he's got that. He he's got that. That pressure to me is taken off of him. He's mm-hmm. won. It can have a bad year or mm-hmm. have a down year. They could still easily scratch it into the playoffs. But yeah, the, the pressure's definitely on Jacksonville. They seem like they were turned the corner last year. It's kind of like the Falcons. Mm-hmm. It's like they've turned back around the corner. Um, what's the deal with that? That game last night, huh? It was pretty bad if, uh, for a Monday night game. You know, it it was the score looked okay with twenty three twenty, but you have two and four against one and five. First half was pretty ugly offensively, but some it was entertaining football. I should say it wasn't a great game. It was an entertaining game. Yeah, those two quarterback sneaks by Eli. It's like we mm. said earlier, where they. But they're just trying to put him in the coffin. They have Saquon Barkley, and uh, instead of handing it off to him, they just let's let's pound it with Eli Manning. Let's pound it with this 36-year-old guy that has a uh, neck problem. Well, he's not the one with the neck problems, but that's got to be genetic, huh? <laughs> well, you think about it, and Jacksonville and where they are, they remind me a lot of Minnesota in the scheme they have in the sense that they want to do what Mike Zimmer does. They that's want to true. ground and pound yep. rather than throw the football give their defense time to rest, be on the sideline, and then come out there and dominate. And they could do that with Leonard Fournette. And the Vikings could do that with Dalvin Cook. But then, once both of them get hurt, Fournette and Cook, then it comes down to how much of a playmaker is your quarterback. He's going to have to basically control the offense. Kirk Cousins has done it better than Blake Bortles. And how good is your backup running back? Latavius Murray has done that better than TJ Yeldon. I don't know if Carlos Hyde will make a difference or not. But until Jacksonville gets Leonard Fournette healthy or finds someone who can take up that load, they are going to be in real trouble because if their defense is on the field for more than their opponent is, they're not going to win. There's somebody that's missing from Jacksonville. You know, you talk about their scheme. Somebody that fit their scheme real well, Mercedes Lewis, came over to Green Bay. Pro football focus has had him rated the top blocking tight end. I mean, it's not even close. He's just an animal. He's like an extra tackle on the field, essentially, when you're trying to run the ball. He came to Green Bay. He hasn't had as much of an impact as I've hoped so far. I thought he would really do things for the play-action pass game. Maybe they're missing him in Jacksonville. Mm-hmm. It, it it seems like it. I mean, there's just there are always these guys behind the scenes on these teams, whether it's the Eagles. You know, they didn't they lose a tight end. They lost a couple players. Didn't think he was going to be. There are some guys and the second and third tier players. You lose a couple of those guys off a championship team, and it can take a team that looked really, really good and and just inside the locker room and behind-the-scenes stuff, man. It can make a big difference, and I think we're seeing that on various teams throughout the NFL. Well, if you look at what the Jaguars need to do to try to turn this season around, if I'm Tom Coughlin in the front office for Jacksonville, I'm on the phone looking maybe for Le'Veon Bell to see if he can you can get some yep. kind of option with him because yep. he's a big enough body. He could be a Fournette-style guy. Plus, you get the receiving option with him. Assuming Le'Veon comes back in the near future, doesn't look like it's going to happen soon, but assuming it does, I think James Conner would fit in with that offense real nicely in Jacksonville. Doesn't it seem like there are guys available? You and, would think so. And and I know in, in the first half of the show, I'm sure you had to have touched on the whole Amari Cooper trade. Mm-hmm. Aren't there guys they could have brought in whether they're undrafted guys, just undrafted street free agents, they could have brought in instead of spending a first round draft pick, 
aren't there guys out there you could bring in instead of having to give up all this currency or whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it, draft capital, for guys that, you know, what team is they're going to have to pay him, mm-hmm. you know, and that's that's one of the biggest things. That's one thing I want to throw in on this Amari Cooper deal is the the draft, the the value of that pick isn't only the pick. It's you get that first-round player on a rookie-scale contract. So you can pay some veterans to stick around a little longer while you have this younger, skilled player essentially being underpaid Mm -hmm. and now the cowboys are losing that and they're gonna have to pay another guy it just really puts you in a hole a lot further than just losing that first round draft pick it was a bad deal for the cowboys terrible trade i don't i don't know what i just bring guys in you Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if you gotta shuffle through six seven eight nine guys you're gonna eventually find someone that can be amari cooper and drop the football Mm -hmm. you know i just don't understand how they calculate this because like i said it's not only losing the pick they're gonna have to pay this guy yeah and and that's one way the packers have been able to sign so many of their veterans obviously they let quite a few walk but they sign these veterans get stock up on draft capital and then they have a lot of young players playing on rookie deals and impact players playing on rookie deals the last few years it was Devontae adams one of the best wide receivers as far as just creating space one-on-one and he's on a rookie scale deal that is huge to a team being able to under you know they're trying to cut every corner they can being able to underpay a guy on a rookie deal that's a huge thing to just give that up like that to a guy that's going to be coming or looking for a deal wow that's just um like i said i'm sure you touched on it but it's just baffling charlie i want to bring up a few points before we have to go to break we were talking about the respect factor that some coaches have earlier on Think about this from a New York Giants perspective. Ben McAdoo fired last season, and a lot of people attribute it, the final straw being that he decided to bench Eli Manning and his streak of games started. What if he did that this year when everybody's calling for it? Would he still be the head coach of the Giants? Had he never done that, he did it this year instead of last year? I think it's totally possible. He'd still be coaching the New York Giants. You're, you could be totally right, and, and that stuff is so hard to look into, you know, because what other stuff was going on behind the scenes? Who did he have disagreements mm-hmm. with? But to go 11-5 and five his first year, obviously it was more than just a little bit of a drop-off going into last year, but doesn't an 11-5 and five record get you a little – doesn't that buy you a little more time? Well, and that's that's what makes it so surprising is how the respect for Eli – has gone so far south in one year. I think that was a last straw for the front office and for the fan base. They were ready to move on from McAdoo after he benched Eli. This year, that's what everybody wants Pat Shermer to do. Yeah. Go figure. All the blame's falling on Eli. Right. Go figure. Okay, last thing before we go to break. You talked about Mike McCarthy and how you don't think that they could upgrade with anybody else. And I'm not going to argue with that, and I respect that, because you've got the facts to back that up, his winning percentage and what have you. But if he, if you're not satisfied with where the Packers are, which a lot of Packers fans aren't satisfied with where they're at right now or where they appear to be headed, and you think about some of the other coaching options out there, maybe an offensive mind you could pair with Aaron Rodgers, if you could make the trade, would you take a guy like Sean Payton over Mike McCarthy? 
Well, just being a Mike McCarthy fan and listening to so many press conferences and listening to so many interviews, watching the Mike McCarthy show every mm-hmm. week, he's just a football guy, and um, I consider myself a football guy, and there's just something about that. It it just seems... I really don't know how to explain it. I get, sometimes it can be kind of foolish, and you can have a little more allegiance to a guy than maybe you should, mm-hmm. and maybe it clouds some judgment. But even if I could have Bill Belichick, I wouldn't take him over Mike okay. McCarthy. Mike McCarthy, he has a way of, and, and something I really love about Mike McCarthy is his ability to take players from that first year to the second year. How many guys in Green Bay do you see have great maybe first years, maybe the start of the How many guys have like the Amari Cooper drop-off? Nobody goes to Green Bay and has that. There, there are many things like that that I could sit and go on and on and on about. And like you say, you know, we talk about the records and all this. Mike McCarthy, to me, has the job in Green Bay for as long as he wants it, whether he wins another Super Bowl in the next in the Aaron Rodgers era or not. Ted Thompson leaving, I think people need to give this a little bit more time. And they are still 3-2-1. and one. That's a good spot to be. There are a lot of teams in the NFL that would like to be 3-2-1 and one with Aaron Rodgers right now. We've got Charlie Bramer in studio with us. We'll take our last time out. More after this in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP and the ESPN-UP app. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP, the ESPN-UP app. Tanner Hoops joined by Charlie Bremer. And Tanner, the Pigskin Payday is back. Come to Ojibwe Casinos to predict the winners of each week's pro football games. Play all season long for your chance at the $100,000 grand prize. Only at Ojibwe Casinos in Barriga and Marquette. Well, we've uh, touched on the NFL for the first three-fourths of the show. Let's finish it off with the World Series yeah. and with the NBA. Uh, first and foremost, we all want the Brewers to be playing instead of the Dodgers. And I wish that was the case up here. It's been fun being a part of the journey up here. Nonetheless, I'm still excited for this World Series. I think it's going to be a good one. I have a hard time picking a winner in this series. I could see it going either way, yeah. but I don't necessarily see it going seven games. I just don't. I I think this is one where if if the Dodgers win it, it's going to have to go seven. But I wouldn't be surprised to see Boston win it in five. I just wouldn't. Not after what they no. did to Houston. They yeah. look complete. And and the Dodger offense, man, if they don't pick it up, they had some, I mean, honestly, throughout the uh, Brewers series, throughout the series, especially the game, a lot of games in Milwaukee. Well, actually, I guess those are some of their better scoring games. But, man, getting shut out five innings by Wade, Miley, and these different guys, the arms that they're going to have to face in mm-hmm. Boston at Fenway, yikes. And And that's why I would have to lean towards Boston. But... The one thing that that's really good about this World Series matchup is there's going to be some great pitching matchups. You know, that's something that like the real baseball guys, they it doesn't really matter to them what teams or this that they just love good pitching matchups. And this is something that that series provides. Yeah, game one tonight, Chris Sale going up against Clayton Kershaw. Can't yeah. ask for much more than that. And then of course you have University of Michigan alum Rich Hill. He's competing for a ring with the Dodgers. Yep, it's going to be yeah. a lot of fun. I mean, the Red Sox bullpen has been their Achilles heel this year. If there's a weak spot, that would be it. But their starting pitching's made up for it. They've gone deep enough. 
David Price, he finally got that big game win that he's been looking for, the clinching game in the ALCS against Houston. Their offense hasn't been known for being explosive, but they're peaking at the right time. They were explosive in the Yankees series. They were explosive against Houston. Their offense, their starting pitching are rolling right now. Their bullpen's okay. They're hanging in there. I, I think it's enough to beat the Dodgers. After, after watching, you know, their offense – Playing well against the Yankees, that was one thing. You know, Luis Severino, these guys that are known to have hiccups, to mm-hmm. say the least. But watching what they did against the Astros pitching staff, that was really, I think that was a sign. And and like you said, I, I think Boston could, could take this in five or six. And just to touch on that Brewers series one last time, you know, I can't think of, I've never watched my team lose. I've never been happier. Mm-hmm. I mean, just there have been after watching about at least 150 Brewers games this year, man, there were times uh, early in the season it was much harder. They they got shut out three games in a row in Chicago. You know, watching over watching them go over 30 innings straight at Wrigley without scoring a run, that was way more painful than watching them lose game seven. W- watching them going into the All-Star break, what they lost like seven of eight games, lost four in a row in Pittsburgh, which is getting pounded. Um, that was way harder to watch than that Game 7 loss. And, man, going into next year, that's a whole show right there, talking about how good they're going to be. But I guess I have to try and focus more on what the present is. And that Red Sox-Dodgers series, that's about – isn't that kind of – shouldn't we have saw that coming a little more? Those are two You would think so. Yeah. If you look at it on paper, it's probably something we should have saw yeah, coming. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I didn't for whatever reason. They're doing what Boston did in the regular season. They're doing it in the postseason. Yep. And and what is it since since June first, the Dodgers are the best. We're the best team in the National mm-hmm. League or something. Or since late May, mm-hmm. it's since since whatever day it was, they were ten games under five hundred. Since that point, they've been the best team in the National League. So mm-hmm. you can't really argue with that. It seems like they really belong. There's no doubt about it. And um, talk about another team that belongs. I know I wanted to get this in here, the Bucks, man. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I've heard, uh, I can't remember who it was, you, you asked him a question uh, about the Bucks and, and what it would mean, what it means to a Bucks fan, what what would that mean, or what level of success are right, basically, yeah. essentially, I guess you were asking it. What what does it take for the Bucks to have a successful season in the fans' eyes? Well, definitely, definitely, um, who was that? That was that wasn't Durant that was on here talking that was about a, that. I believe that was Ryan Steve. Was that right? Well, it uh, it definitely he he was right. He was totally right. And I'm a huge Bucks fan. And a win, a a playoff win, you know, a series win. That's definitely. But I think out of this team, from what I've seen the first few games, John Henson made two threes against the Pacers, two buzzer beating threes. I've never seen John Henson make a three in his whole career. They're stretching the floor. Really, they look like the Rockets to me mm-hmm. uh, against the Hornets, especially in the first half. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And um, teams like the Pacers, you could really see how the Bucks are going away from the mid-range game, and it's either Giannis in the paint or Chris Middleton, Lopez, and, and these guys, Pat Connington, Dante DiVincenzo. Mm-hmm. He's been killing it. From, these guys are all on fire from deep. Obviously, Chris Middleton's a great shooter. Eric Bledsoe's getting more open looks. And they're going away from that mid-range game, which has always been – they were good at it. But 
you have to be so good at them, but you have to be so efficient at the mid-range game. It it's much better to pound in the paint or shoot a three, mm-hmm. and that's what the, the Pacers are more of a mid-range team. And the Bucks tore them apart. And um, something, another thing I'm seeing from the Bucks this year, a lot of improvement is their rebounding. They were one of the worst rebounding teams in the league last year. That is not going to be the case this year. And and their spacing, you know, you talk about spacing and and last year I would think, man, the Bucks the Bucks are good at they're they're they seem spaced out. They're no, like I I know what the difference is now and I know what coach Bud was talking about. Mm-hmm. And um I really think they have a chance to come out of the East from what I've seen these first few games. Obviously, there could be injuries this that and the other thing. But even so far this year, there's so much more around Giannis that it's more than I expected. He doesn't have to carry this team like he did last year. And um, even Chris Middleton, there's so much more around him. Other players are blossoming. And that first-round pick, DiVincenzo, mm-hmm. I, I I was happy with the pick. Man, that kid is athletic. I was unaware he had the highest vertical leap of anybody in the NBA Combine. I'm, I'm really surprised by this team, honestly, and uh, I'm excited. Talk about Middleton. Seven of eight last night from three. Giannis, 31 and 15, a monster game for him. Tell me how you like Coach Bud, what he's bringing to the table so far. Um, Like I said, the spacing, the team plays a whole game. Under under Kid, you know, they'd have a good quarter, and um, and then they'd give it right back. It, it seems like they don't give stuff away as easily as they used to. Obviously, they were always really good in transition, they're they're still great in transition this year, but um, just their overall athleticness. Matthew Dellavedova's not on the floor as much, as much as we love his try hardness, and we cannot have him on the floor as much as he was last year. And um, even Pat Connington is an upgrade from him. And uh, this this team, really, their spacing and their defense, they're they're not playing as much trap if they're just doing they're just playing a straight up man and it seemed like jason kidd wanted their length to be suffocating a lot of trap you know let's force turnovers well let's take this length and just play it one-on-one and and, and it's working it, it seems like coach bud has simplified the defense a little bit and it's made it that much better how about uh we go west right before we sign off la lakers losing last night 143 to 142 in overtime wow. against San Antonio. Yep. 142 is the most that a LeBron team has ever scored, and it comes in a losing effort. LeBron himself, 12 seconds left in a one-point game, misses two free throws, and I know fans are going to criticize him for that, the anti-LeBron fans. L.A. media is not going to love him like Cleveland did, and the fans will see how they warm up to him. I know they're excited that he's there, but the Lakers are 0-3. How worried should they be? I'm not ready to hit the panic button necessarily on them yet, but if they lose to Phoenix and start out 0-4, then I'm really hitting the panic well, button. Yeah, if they lose to Phoenix, that's a whole other... Uh, they might have to transition to the D-League. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, I I know you really had expectations for the Lakers. Uh, they were a little more logical, mm-hmm. let's say. There was a lot of national media that I I feel like they were losing their heads a little bit over the Lakers, saying they could be a two or a three out of the West. 
I remember you saying a oh, low seed at mm-hmm. best, and and I I agreed with that. And I don't think they even look like a playoff team at Not this right point. now. Mm-mm. But really, how worried should that really make them? Mm-hmm. You know, they they still have the potential ability to add a guy like Kawhi, or they could trade for Jimmy Butler. Mm-hmm. There's any number of moves they could make to improve. But really, I just think just give it some time, right? Mm-hmm. Time a lot of times is the best move you can make. Or what? What's the saying? The best move you can make is not making any move at all. Right. So, or give it some time. I don't know, but I I didn't have that high of expectations for the Lakers to begin with, so I'm not that surprised. And I guess that means if I was a Lakers fan, I wouldn't be that worried. But I just, man, I'm so surprised. And and <laughs> I'm doing the same thing to you now, like I always did to Blake. Just go right from the Lakers back to the Bucks. And man, I just can't believe. Talk about a team zero and three, and then a team three and zero. You know mm-hmm. what? A, how times have changed. Can't wait to see those two on the same floor as each other, Lakers and Bucks. That's gonna be entertaining stuff. I do. Do the Bucks play the Lakers on Christmas, or is it the Knicks? I know that Bucks finally play on Christmas Day for the first time in like thirty years. I make it my policy that I don't skip ahead holidays. So right now I'm all focused on Halloween. Ask me about the Halloween, Halloween slate of games. And <laughs> Halloween, huh? We're what about gonna, Thanksgiving? Oh, yeah, I guess that's We're not looking ahead to Thanksgiving or Christmas yet. We're still on Halloween. I'm, I'm totally looking forward to Thanksgiving. I can't stand Halloween. It's the worst holiday ever. It's horrible. Who likes being scared? Being scared is terrible. I love Thanksgiving. I'm looking forward to Thanksgiving. The next holiday on my calendar, it's totally Thanksgiving. We're going to have a fun time next week. We've got plenty that we're already excited to talk about when I you think and I are on. Definitely, I think so, and uh, I'm going to get some facts ready. This whole Mike McCarthy thing, it's about to get real. We've got Charlie Bramer in studio with us. Charlie, as always, thanks for being here, man. Look forward to next Tuesday. Back at you tomorrow here on ESPN-UP and the ESPN-UP mobile app.